Hello, hello, and welcome back. This is Ramsey Scott coming to you live with your Spring 2020 American Autobiography COVID-19 podcast. I hope you're safe and healthy, and thanks for listening. Welcome back. What a strange time. And uh, so... We're continuing today our discussion of Harriet Jacobs' narrative, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, and I'm considering this text in light of a couple of uh, schools of, of analysis that emerged in the 20th century. I'm thinking about structuralism and post-structuralism, and I'm talking about some of the ideas associated with those varieties of critical analysis because... I think that they lend tools with which we can begin to really appreciate and even uh, look upon with awe the text of Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. And we can begin to appreciate with greater uh, exactitude the complexity and the richness of this text. And so... Structuralism and post-structuralism occur to me as a couple of critical methodologies, especially well-suited to uh, be useful in looking at incidents in the life of a slave girl because they have at their center, as their focus, considerations of language. Now, just as an aside, a brief digression. Structuralism, uh, here's a famous text associated with structuralism. I'm thinking of Roland Barthes' Mythologies, published in the 1950s in France. And in Mythologies, Roland Barthes, uh, French writer, literary critic, and, and uh, scholar, whose background was in classics and who wrote some of the foundational texts or the most influential texts for literary scholars when it comes to structuralist analysis. Uh, in Mythologies, Roland Barthes approached topics like advertising, uh, soap advertisements, uh, the ways that American films depict Romans, talked about Julius Caesar starring Marlon Brando. Uh, he analyzed wrestling, French professional res wrestling, which is in many ways similar to American professional wrestling. And that's a famous essay. And I'll just say briefly about Roland. The first, it's the first essay that begins mythologies. And Roland Barth is looking at wrestling, and he makes a number of observations about the kind the kind of entertainment that unfolds in the typical wrestling match. And in the process of making that analysis, uh, basically argues that there is a set structure that is repeated over and over and over again. And similarly, if he's looking at something like soap in mythologies, he'll, he says, uh, here is the way the commercial frames, represents, and sells back to us a set of values. 
And we think that, we might think, we'd be mistaken to believe, however, but we might, we might think that buying soap is just buying soap and, you know, who, 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 that we don't need to analyze it any further. Uh, but if you look at the way that soap is being sold to us, well, you might begin to realize that there are all kinds of ways that our self-image and view of ourself in relation to our society and so on and so forth is being manipulated or uh, being used by companies to offer us or to, to basically manipulate our desires and to play into our uh, anxieties in ways that are quite sp often quite specific. And, you know, since that essay, which was written, you know, as I said, in the 1950s, this kind of targeted uh, appeal to individuals, of course, as, as we know, has become way more intense and more nuanced. But regardless, that's a uh, Roland Barthes' Mythologies is a classic, a kind of landmark text in terms of in terms of structuralism, and I'm mentioning it to say that a par a, a parallel or a similar mode of analysis when it comes to incidents in the life of a slave girl might be to say, aha, here is a what we scholars have traditionally called a slave narrative, and it involves uh, testimony from the abolitionist editor about the uh, truthfulness of the events depicted therein, and then begins a text in which the narrator tells us about not knowing her family and about the uh, the what, um, what the great house is, and... Uh, instructs us as to some of the horrors of slavery in chapters like Sketches of Neighboring Slaveholders, which is very similar to a chapter in Frederick Douglass's narrative, and so on and so forth. Um, okay, so in the thumbnail improvised almost parody of an anal uh, structuralist analysis of incidents, I suppose what I'm saying is that we could begin to see incidents for all of its generic qualities, that is to say, all of its qualities that are that it holds that are common to the general genre of slave narrative. And that kind of analysis can be useful in a way. But I think if we shift toward a more of a post-structuralist analysis, and I'm about to explain what that might entail. I think that we get a much more nuanced and a much more interesting view and perspective on incidents and that the richness and complexity of the text begins to open in ways that to me are stunning and profound and awesome, awe-inspiring. And so I'm going to talk now about what that what what I mean by a post-structuralist approach and, and what that might look like. And the first thing I want to say is that Roland Barthes pivots in his career uh, from structuralism to post-structuralism, and he begins to take greater interest in all of the things that might be left out or missed or fall into the, the cracks or the crevices of structuralist analysis. And he begins to focus on the in-between, the defiant aspects, the resistant aspects of texts, and even ways that as readers, we might read against the grain of texts to really 
uncover uh, and to revel in those the, the oddities and the peculiarities of, of texts. Now, remember that in some ways this is modeled already, always already in Harriet Jacobs' instance in The Life of a Slave Girl, because the narrator, Linda, is actively engaged in reinterpreting and re-presenting to Dr. Flint her readings of the Bible in ways that go against the grain of his analysis and of the dominant analyses provided by slaveholders. And this is, again, depicted in a number of ways in the text, but also you can notice that, like in Frederick Douglass's autobiography, Harriet Jacobs also makes a point of talking about the nuances of Christianity as it is sometimes taught by preachers paid by slaveholders versus some preachers whose readings of the Bible conflict with the wishes of slaveholders. So built into incidents in the life of a slaveholder is an active debate about a text, an active critical debate in which Harriet uh, Jacobs' narrator, Linda Brent, is in conflict with those who hold authority over her flesh and body and the flesh and body of her own children. And yet she's actively engaging in a textual debate with those authorities, one that has significant danger for her. From a post-structuralist perspective, that intertextual, intertextual debate and the fact that the text is in a way presenting implicitly a meta-commentary about the act of interpretation and the vitality of the act of interpretation. That's all very significant. Uh, also, uh, there's the fact that the text, while adhering to many of the generic qualities of slave narrative, is incidents in the life of a slave girl. It's specifically concerned with gender and enslavement. That's significant. Its title announces to you the fact that it is about slavery from the perspective of a writer who is also a woman. And that, of course, as, as anyone who spends any time with this text quickly finds out, a great focus of the text is to depict, uh, to relate the ways in which enslavement for women has a peculiar and particular, excuse me, particular varieties of horror and terror and, vi and sexual violence. And that's something that if we're just taking a more a broader uh, bird's eye slash uh, mole's eye, I think moles are, might, they have eyes, but they either can't see at all or can't see very well. But uh, in some ways, in, in some ways, I think it, structuralism tends to operate both from a bird's eye view, and then when it gets to granular details, it's so selective in those details, it's almost a mole's eye view as well. Uh, and that, again, this is a straw man kind of version of structuralism. But, and, and by the way, post-structuralism from a certain perspective can't exist without structuralism. They, there's an interplay.
All right, that musical interlude brought to you by Smokey Robinson and Miracles. So, in light of our discussion, structuralism, post-structuralism, incidents in the light, uh, incidents in the life of a slave girl, I want to bring it back to the book of books, the book that is the Bible. Now, uh, we're I'm I'm drawing some distinctions between structuralism and post-structuralism, and now I'm going to use those distinctions to think of the Bible a couple of different ways. Now, from a certain uh, structuralist perspective, the New Testament provides a rereading and a reinterpretation of the Old Testament such that it gives us a number of pretty clear meanings. We have the arrival of the Messiah in the form of Jesus, and this is seen as a fulfillment of a number of prophecies found in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and there's a neatness and a conclusiveness from a certain perspective, from a Christian perspective, provided by the New Testament. However, when we zoom in a little closer on some of the details, things get a lot more confusing, and this is where a post-structuralist approach to me would make a lot of sense if I were going to be uh, spending a lot of time studying and investigating the Bible. For example, uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible, there's this odd thing where uh, we get the story of Jesus, but we don't get one story of Jesus's life uh, in the Gospels. We get four Gospels, and the four Gospels, three early ones, which uh, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke, I think, and then there's John, which comes later. Uh, but they're all four versions of a kind of life story or biography of Jesus. Well, this is a little confusing they each have particularities and aspects of unique, uniquenesses that are uh, specific to each of the individual Gospels. So, if at the center of the primary story of the main religious figure in Christianity, we have not one life story, but four. This presents some challenges and complications. Uh, Post-structuralists, I think, ought to get excited about this intertextual intertextuality, the repetition, and the slippages that happen between these four stories of Jesus. So, the book to end all books turns out to be many books in one can add to this the fact that different varieties of Christianity actually have different Bibles and their Bibles have different books in them. I think that there are something uh, Greek and Russian Orthodox Bibles have additional books not included in most Protestant Bibles. Catholic Bibles have sections not included in Protestant Bibles and perhaps not included in Greek Orthodox Bibles. I don't know all of, the, all of the details. Even within each of those categorizations, imagine all of the different translations of quote-unquote the Bible into different languages and the kinds of choices that translators have to make, not to mention the fact that all of those Bibles rely upon earlier versions and translations of Bibles. There is no original, absolute, 
once and for all final edition of the Bible that anyone can settle on as the appropriate one. And if you listen to biblical scholars, often when they interpret the Bible, they go back to translations of words from Hebrew and Aramaic and weave those translations into their analyses in English or Spanish or Italian or whatever language they happen to be speaking and, and using to uh, to reinterpret the Bible to their constituents and to their audience. Okay, so there's nothing outside the text. Derrida is famous, uh, the French uh, literary critic, philosopher, writer, intellectual is famous for remarking, but also there is no one text. There is no one single text that we can all turn to as the law. And What's more, in Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, there's a constant interplay between truth and reality and the record, the written chronicle of events. From the very beginning, Linda learns or is introduced to literacy and, and to writing through sexual innuendos and the grooming that she undergoes to become in effect, the, the, the enslaved concubine to Dr. Flint. This is her introduction to writing into language. It's a level of deceit and uh, evil that is built into the very enterprise from the beginning. And what's startling about this um, is that there's another group of critics uh, known as Russian formalists, and I'm thinking now in particular of two people, uh, Viktor Shklovsky, who has a very famous little essay uh, called Art as Technique, and, uh, and then Mikhail Bakhtin. And Bakhtin, in, in many ways, have, provides tools that are um, very much akin to post-structuralism, even though he's writing um, in the uh, first half of the 20th century rather than most post-structuralist texts emerging uh, in the latter half of the 20th century. But uh, Viktor Shklovsky, an artist technique, talks about ways in which poetry in particular, uh, not, not poetry in particular, but, but writing as art, makes use of language in special ways that alter our view of reality and that uh, allow us allow familiar things to appear unfamiliar again so that we understand them in a new way. And toward the end of Artist Technique, Viktor Shklovsky talks specifically about sexual innuendos as an aspect of language that does something similar, uh, that, that uses imagery in a different way to present unusual ideas and so on. And it's, it's interesting to think that, just to note, that this is another little detail in Harriet Jacobs' Instance in the Life of the Slave Girl that ought to be uh, especially interesting and meaningful to literary critics working in the 20th and 21st centuries. But also, uh, one of the things that, uh, as I understand it, the New Testament tries to do is to tell its readers how to understand the Old Testament. So people come and ask Jesus, hey, you know, Jesus, what about, I thought it said in the Old Testament that you can't get divorced. What, can you get divorced? Then, but then it said that you could get divorced. Um, but some say now that divorce is wrong. You know, what, what about divorce? How should we understand divorce based on the Old Testament? And Jesus, you know, offers some kind of answer. Or people say, what does it really mean to follow God's law? Uh, you know, I, I've been trying really hard. Am I doing a good job? And Jesus says, no, you know, actually you should give away all your possessions. You know, so there, there's a way in which the Bible, in, and uh, thinking especially through the New Testament, uh, being a, a part aspect of the Bible, especially important to Christians, and of course then to Harriet Jacobs and her encounters with Christianity, 
there is a meta commentary built in. How do we even understand this text? How do we approach God's word? How do we try and live in accordance with God's word? Please teach us how do we go about this? And there's a pedagogical element and there's meta commentary over women uh, interwoven with, with pedagogy, with teachings. Um, and it's intertextual. It's pointing back to the Old Testament, pointing to, well, here's how the Pharisees interpret this. Here's how this group interprets that. Uh, the, and it, it's, it's a text, there's a textuality and an element of textual criticism, uh, textual analysis built into the very text of the Bible. And the same kind of textuality is crucial to Harriet Jacobs' narrative. It's how she begins to manipulate the master. She begins writing letters and having them sent back from the north as if she has already escaped to the north. She takes the master's language, masters that language, and uses it, manipulates it, reshapes it, represents it to the master in ever-nuanced, sly seductive, uh, and ultimately brilliant ways. So, text, textuality, central to her text. Um, in chapter 20, New Perils, Linda, hiding in a white woman's house, it was a, a, who she calls her benefactress. There are a number of benefactors and benefactresses in this text, but this is one of them. Uh, that benefactress herself is a slaveholder, and Betty is enslaved to her. Betty is helping Linda uh, in the hopes that she might escape. By the way, Becky has some brilliant strategies of her own. For example, reading from the beginning of chapter 20, the second paragraph, the news of his arrest was carried to my grandmother who conveyed it to Betty. In the kindness of her heart, she again stowed me away under the floor. As she walked back and forth in the performance of her culinary duties, she talked apparently to herself, but with the intention that I should hear what was going on. So, in order to convey information to Linda, who's hidden under the floorboards of the kitchen, we have Betty walking back and forth, talking to herself, as if she was talking to herself, but all the while talking so that Linda can hear her and understand what's going on with the arrest of her uncle. Uh, just one of the many nuanced ways that discourse is being used in an inventive manner that aids some variety of resistance on the part of the enslaved. This is what uh, the scholar James C. Scott, in his really interesting book, Domination and the Arts of Resistance, calls a hidden transcript. Ways in which discourse is manipulated, used by the oppressed in order to uh, form some kind of community and in order to effect some kind of resistance. Now, interwoven into the same chapter of New Perils involving Betty, Linda, and attempt, the attempt to escape there is Peter, who is aiding Linda, who ultimately aids Linda in her escape and gets her on a boat and so on. Peter, by the way, it's hard to not read this as a biblical illusion because we know that the, le the legend is such, as I understand it, that St. Peter is waiting at the pearly gates. So remember, there was the rhyme that we talked about earlier. Uh, Old Satan Church is down, is down below. Up to God's free church, I hope to go part of a song that's sung. And here again, we have Peter 
aiding Linda in her effort to escape to the north. And Peter, the name of the saint who's supposed to be waiting in heaven, guiding the gates. And Betty even says, unless you think I'm getting you know too far-fetched here, Betty even says uh, that she says to Linda, I'm glad I could help you. I hope the good Lord will open the path for you. I'm going with you to the lower gate. Put your hand, uh, and she goes on to uh, help her, you know, such that, uh, let's see, I performed her satisfaction. At the gate, I found Peter, a young colored man, waiting for me. Uh, and so here again it is indeed Peter waiting at the gate for Linda. The biblical allusions here seem pretty clear. Okay, and uh, once if you're aware of Peter and the pearly gates, it's hard not to recognize the allusions. So here we have a text that is intertextual. It's looking back at the Bible. It's also throughout the narrative reinterpreting the Bible, uh, reading back, reading against the grain of the society and culture in which Linda is living to say back or, or to challenge interpretations of the Bible, to reinterpret the Bible in different ways, to challenge the authority of the master. And in addition to that quality of meta-commentary, meta-commentary and, and, and teaching us how to read, uh, demonstrating alternative readings and readings that, that involve resistance to the, the dominant uh, oppressive forces in the society and culture. There is this quality of intertextuality, allusions to the Bible, re-readings of the Bible, taking lessons of the Bible and reshaping them in the colloquial languages of the enslaved, as in that rhyme involving uh, Satan's church being down below. And so in addition to those qualities of intertextuality, uh, metacommentary, pedagogical function, there is the aperture. The aperture is this little hole, this little opening and when she is hidden in, the, in her so-called loophole of retreat, Linda is looking out on her society and culture through this little tiny crack. But through that crack, the world that we see is profound. And it's profound because it provides us with this. It is also modeling. It is a window within a window. The text is a window into enslavement. It's more specifically a window into the way that enslavement works on and works against women. And now we have that window narrowed even more so that this woman, our narrator, is confined in a grave, in grave-like conditions as if she's entombed, if you will, deep within the heart of the heart of enslavement. Now, the text goes on for several chapters after Linda Brent reaches the North. And those chapters are, you know, it's almost, it's almost anticlimactic, I think, if you're expecting a sudden switch to, from, from enslavement to freedom. It happens by degrees. And then even the scene of, and I quote from the text, pure, unadulterated freedom, which happens uh, in chapter 37 of Visit to England, where she writes, I laid my head on my pillow for the first time with the delightful consciousness of pure, unadulterated, oh, excuse me, with the delightful consciousness of pure, unadulterated freedom. This is a strange thing to say at this point in the text. She's visiting England, and part of it, uh, she's laying out, and again, from a structuralist 
perspective with regard to, to slave narrative. This fulfills one of the common generic elements, life after escape from enslavement, where it turns out that life is not so rosy. It's not filled with freedom. There is segregation in the North, as she details. There are insults and uh, today what I suppose we might call microaggressions and outright threats of racial violence. By the way, unbelievable to note that taxi drivers, carriage drivers in this case, uh, upon her arrival in New York, were about as unreliable as uh, taxi drivers are in, in terms of, uh, you know, sort of myths and legends about New York City. Uh, the unscrupulous Irish carriage drivers in this text are, uh, are a nod both to New York City's past and to its, its present in the way that uh, uh, swindlers and the likes uh, con men abound, right, so for the eager to trap the naive tourist or the naive traveler. But anyway, um, so there is this generic aspect that is in common with slave narrative where the, um, after leaving the South, the North turns out to be not so hospitable. Uh, the trip to England is a common trope also that you can find in other slave narratives. And the contrasting of uh, England's post-slavery society and culture with the North. Uh, and that, that's, a, that's a dynamic that you can find in other texts as well. Uh, but when it comes to the aperture and to the perspective, the idea that while she is in England serving still as a servant to a wealthy white family, that she suddenly has this revelation of pure, unadulterated freedom seems so strange because we know also that she has had to leave her children behind in England, I'm sorry, in the United States, and she is now traveling with uh, in, in charge of the care of a child who is not her own, but own, you know, the, the child of this white family. And yet here is the moment when she says she experiences pure unadulterated freedom. Now, I think that from a post-structuralist perspective, we might be inclined to take these comments with a grain of salt, because I think one of the really fascinating elements of this text is that it seems, from a certain perspective, from a post-structuralist perspective, to challenge the very concept of pure, unadulterated freedom. And one of the things to note about post-structuralism is that post-structuralism in general, anything assumed that lays claim to be a pure, unadulterated anything is going to be viewed with suspect and is going to, is probably ripe for being uh, taken apart well, logically, rationally, philosophically, uh, there is probably some element of uh, transcendentalist uh, idealism or uh, uh, stretching, straining after a kind of platonic form of uh, goodness and purity and the like that post-structuralists are very skeptical about. You know, one of the really interesting aspects of incidents in the life of a slave girl is that it presents the, a narrator who makes a series of choices and she's very insistent upon noting that they are her choices so for example getting pregnant by mr sands rather than dr flint that seems to be from a certain perspective an act of resistance is it and perhaps it's a move toward freedom in the direction of freedom if there's some kind of continuum uh, or perhaps freedom is more of uh, uh, there's a field or a plane of 
freedoms and unfreedoms and nodes and different points on the map or diagram and and perhaps in a way moving toward Mr. Sands at one point is moving more in the direction of a certain kind of greater freedom and at other times Mr. Sands then becomes uh, uh, differently associated and becomes more of a trap and uh, sticky a risk to freedom but aside from this one sentence about pure unadulterated freedom which as i say is written at a strange time when she's forced to travel to england for her employment and is separated from her daughter i think her son by this point is already traveling uh to has traveled to the west coast for work uh in an attempt to find work but Anyway, the point is, wow, what a strange conception of, or what a strange moment to come upon a sense of pure, unadulterated freedom. And that's one of the things that's so radical about this text. Think of a mother saying such a thing while separated from, unwillfully, from her daughter. Ah, she's a working mother. She's pursuing her career. Uh, there's a kind of power there also, and it's it's extremely resistant to 19th century conceptions of womanhood. This is not the good uh, domestic uh, wifely figure that the 19th century comes to associate with womanhood. This is this this narrator has other interests and prerogatives. And that is, I think, incredibly powerful. And it's, it's a, one of the things that makes this text truly remarkable. And it, again, I think that some of that, those remarkable qualities are really come to light when you think about the role that language plays in this text and the way that writing is so closely interwoven with its structure. And this uh, is also something that it has in common in many ways with Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. Franklin spends a lot of time talking about learning to write, but what's fascinating is when he talks about learning to write, often what he's actually doing, doing is learning to paraphrase, practicing the art of paraphrase, the art of condensation, the art of uh, finding and using sampling in, in contemporary parlance, sampling other people's texts, manipulating them for his own uses. He's not talking about being an original genius. He is, in a certain way, but when it comes to his writing, he's very concernedly not talking about being original, an original genius. He's talking about becoming an expert sampler, manipulator, and appropriator. And there's a way in which Harriet Jacobs also, in her text, demonstrates mastery as a reader as much as a, as a writer, as an interpreter and an, a textual critic. Uh, she, she is... A master, and she becomes a master at manipulating language and the act of writing in order to not capture the truth or to represent purity or to demonstrate her honesty. No, she is using writing as the, a master's tool, and she's turning it on her master and using it with incredible mastery. And it's one of the. It's just such a remarkable thing about this story, and. It is biblical to me on a number of levels. It's biblical in the sense that I find this text to be endlessly uh, fascinating, endlessly complex, and I can't account for all of its oddities and unusual features. Just as an aside, there's a reference to a, a, 
a man who's enslaved. And I think there's an allusion to being sexually abused by the white man who keeps him chained by his bedside. It's a really horrific little detail. Um, and it, again, it's just a little window. It's a little aperture, a little opening into this world, but it's a very specific perspective that is offered. And it's an, it's just an extraordinary text. And I think that uh, in terms of biblical, the, the choices that the narrator faces are absolutely biblical. And we know that the Old Testament and the story of the Hebrews involves enslavement and her efforts to escape enslavement are biblical. The level of violence and the level of, uh, of evil on the part of the slaveholders is biblical. And she repeated snakes and slaveholders, as she says, come out in the summer. She says that repeatedly. And there's a way in which this whole the, that dynamic is 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 biblical, and I think of it too in our present moment. You know, this feels very biblical. I am I'm texting friends about who has yeast to make bread. You know, this is uh, as someone who's has spent many years celebrating Passover. The idea that uh, all of a sudden I'm facing the prospect of making my own unleavened bread is really. Uh, mind-blowing. And it gives me, as I say, extra respect for this text, for Harriet Jacobs' text. It's so elegant. Uh, it's so skillfully constructed. And it is so remarkable the way that language and the manipulation of language is really at its center. And so I hope that you're getting some enjoyment from the text. Uh, I hope that someone out there is listening to this podcast. I enjoy making these. It takes me hours and hours to put them together in part because uh, GarageBand is totally new to me and I don't have all the proper equipment, but I'm doing my best. And thanks for listening. Please do email me, participate in discussion board, be in touch with one another, uh, reach out and let's try and foster a community out of these extremely difficult circumstances. I hope that you will be in touch. Streets of Rome are filled with rubble, ancient footprints.